0: Advanced data analytics and AI are finally enabling healthcare organizations to personalize treatment plans, predict health trends, and reduce gaps in care. If done right, that means lower costs, better care, and improved outcomes. Today's guest is Rajesh Subramaniam, CEO of Results CX, which strives to use this approach to transform healthcare, making it more accessible, efficient, and effective. Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. If you like this show, please subscribe and leave a review. Rajesh, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. It's good to be here, David. Thanks, and really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, let's start from the beginning, and that is your beginning. And I'd love to hear about your childhood, what that was like, and any childhood influences that have stuck with you throughout your career. No, uh, childhood was
1: came from very humble beginnings. Uh, we yeah, unfortunately lost my father very early in uh, in in my growing up years, so my mom has been the rock who's raised both my sister and I, and she was a school teacher, and uh, and yeah, I've always had um, the the strappings of. You know, trying to break the shackles and 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 move up and and improve my own quality of life, and uh, you know that's uh, you know that uh, rolling stone gathers uh, its own moss, and and
0: that's what I did. Sounds good. And what did you do uh, in terms of education, which is is often part of that type of a story?
1: Yeah. So education, I I, I studied uh, accounting uh, and uh, commerce. I. Uh, I, I I always had a uh, had a natural affinity with numbers because uh, you know numbers tell you there's no subjectivity in when you when numbers add up so uh, and 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 that ingrained a little bit of a logical mind in the way I uh, I go about dealing with my life. Uh, it can be exasperating for a lot of people because uh, you know so, you know there's so many shades of gray that one misses out when you're looking at things in a binary world. So
0: yeah, so. I see on your LinkedIn, it says, you know, you call yourself the numbers guy. And what I wonder is that it sounds like that is something you embrace, but uh, did you give yourself that name or did someone start calling you that and you just decided to keep it for yourself as your moniker?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so somebody said, uh, yeah, you'll get it. You're the numbers guy. Yeah, no, you'll get it. You'll get the, the numbers guy. So in any discussions, be it on strategy, capital allocation, be it, you know, new markets to enter, be it, you know, this is... Throughout my career, you know, whether I was, uh, you know, as, a, as an M&A consultant, whether I was, uh, you know, in, in the private equity world, venture world, hey, okay, you're the numbers guy, Tell, you know, what, what do you think of this? So, you know, it, it always came back to, you know, all the esotericism is discussed and when it has to make sense, you're the numbers guy, it doesn't yeah. make sense or not.
0: That's, and that and just stuck with me. That sounds good. Well, we'll I'll have to have the letters guy on the show at some point as well, but we'll uh, we'll stick with you for the moment. So uh, early career, I saw you had it was a company initially. I think I was going to ask you how to pronounce it because it's it says ICICI. Now, given what you said, maybe that's Roman numerals, and I'm supposed to just give it as a number. But what was that?
1: No, yeah. So ICICI was the actually the Industrial Credit and Investment Corporation of India. So uh, so that's the acronym for ICICI. It started as a. Uh, 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 an institution to uh, uh, invest in infrastructure and development finance projects in India to improve the quality of uh, you know access to power, roads, infrastructure, uh, and help companies build capacity to for to drive the you know consumption driven demand in India in the early years. And from being a development financial institution, it morphed itself into uh, a wider universal bank. So that's why what was Industrial Credit and Investment Corporation of India became ICICI, and it became a universal bank. So it was not just a monoline direct uh, a DFI institution, but it was more of a universal bank. So that's that's ICICI for you.
0: That sounds good. You know, sometimes uh, organizations start with uh, using initials, and then they either change what the initials mean, or they get rid of it completely. Because I think MCI was originally uh, Microwave Communications Incorporated, and then eventually just MCI. You know, that's just gonna... That's going to do so it more than it microwave communication. So that's yeah. why I call it MCI. Yeah. Exactly. So then I saw you were at First Source and then Walden and then back to First Source. So talk about that journey a little bit, if you would. Yeah. So uh,
1: ICI, I was uh, in charge of uh, curating and, and, and setting up the BPO project uh, as a part of the International Business Group, uh, which was led by the then Joint Managing Director and Chief Operating Officer of the bank. Uh uh, and uh, we're a small team, uh, and ICSA. The beauty with ICSA is it's a pretty entrepreneurial organization. Everything needs to get done in ninety days, and once you get to a go/no go decision, and if it's a go, the whole organization supports you. It's like an entrepreneurial journey, and you get projects kicked off and off the ground. So, so BPO was one of the more uh, uh, strategic projects, which was identified by ICSA to create a pretty viable and valuable uh, third-party business. And I was in charge of that project. And um, hence, uh, uh, you know, it was ICICI one source uh, when we started. I was the first employer of the company. I was the head of corporate development and, and strategy. Uh, and the CEO and I, uh, you know, we, we built it up to its IPO in 2007. Uh, and uh, we created a company which was worth about a billion dollars uh, in 2008. And uh, yeah, and uh, and given ICICI had sold sold down its uh, stake, the right to use their name went away. Uh, you know, once their ownership threshold fell below fifty one percent, so that's when we rechristened ourselves as First Source. Uh, and as we were scaling, and ICICS ambitions in international markets were scaling, we didn't want the ability of not being able to work with international banks because they perceived ICIC as competition to them. So, it all came back to say that it made sense and co terminus with our IPO, the branding of First Source took off uh, significantly. And, and and that's how the name First Source was. So, so I was a CFO when I left First Source. I believed that I'd played my journey of seeing a company right from a business plan uh, with some money in the bank uh, to go in and create a business. And we did that. And then I wanted to get back into the venture world uh, and use the experiences of how to build a company uh, and, and try and help the fledging technology community in India at that point in time to get to the next level. So And that's how I joined Walden. Uh, and and uh, Walden was actually among the earliest uh, Silicon Valley VCs in India, uh, along with uh, Draper Fisher-Jewinson. And, uh, you know, they've been in India for a while. And uh, there were some common connects that connected us to the chairman. And uh, we kept in touch for six months. He offered me the role of a general partner in the fund that they were investing in i I took the role, became a VC made some investments, and then first source got into deep trouble man there was manage, i mean uh, the whole management team that had created the company had pretty much left uh, at the company it just got into a you know a, a hole which it wasn't able to extricate itself out there was a lot of noise at the board level at the uh, shareholder level and at the operating level so it was so. So then the yeah, uh, the 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 early members of the board that re- remained in the organization got me back uh, to help turn around the business and um, and it was a great challenge as a, as a, as a venture capitalist I was having fun but I didn't enjoy the fact that I was putting the control of my destiny in someone else's hands. yeah I want control of my own destiny yeah so I said, uh, maybe I'm not cut out for venture investing and I came back to the operating world uh, turned around a business whose market cap was.
0: You know 55 million is this, this neck next thing that we're talking about now no I say first of all so so time
1: source from you know 55 million dollars to when I left it was close to about a billion dollars in market cap got bored and that's when I set up next thing it, uh, which led to the next chapter of where I am right got
0: it and what is uh what is what is next thing and what was next thing? next thing is uh, is the art
1: of predicting future outcomes with external stimuli thats yeah. what Means so if you, if you look at the meaning of next thing, that's what it means. So basically, the whole BPO industry was ripe for disruption. I had seen it up close. Uh, yeah, we knew that uh, the the level of digital interventions that one could bring in was almost like the difference between Back to the Future One and Back to the Future Two. So yeah, so we clearly saw that you know the 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 art of uh, what can happen in industries that were digitally naive, which were pretty lot of them. Uh, And that's why the thesis of Nexting was to create a next generation uh, business process outsourcing uh, organization that goes into traditional businesses and enables a level of disruptions that drives superior outcomes while reducing cost to service.
0: Great. Okay. And then uh, results, CX. So what's the reason to found the company? I understand you have like a personal drive and a a vision, but what was the big unmet need in the market that uh, caused you to go in that direction?
1: Absolutely. So I, I, I didn't found the company. We uh, the company has been in existence for for more than thirty years, but we acquired the company because we really liked the work they did and the impact they made for their customers and their customers' customers. So uh, they were pretty big in healthcare. Uh, healthcare payer again, it's an industry which was uh, is relatively digitally naive compared to some of the other more digitally native industries like consumer tech or you know even financial services put the regulatory envelope around that industry. And, and we fundamentally believe that, uh, uh, you know, the whole healthcare industry in America has got so many inefficiencies, you know, be yes. it on the provider side, be it on the payer side. Now, what happens is when there are two big 800 pound gorillas that are trying to solve their problem, which is the provider and the payer, you know, people ignore and forget about the member. I mean, you know, if there's a patient at the end of it. Yeah needs the care the patient needs to figure out how are they going to go through the process because it's traumatic i mean when you're sick and you've gone through a process and you file the claim you need to get the claim paid you need to put your copay out sometimes you can't meet the copay obligations how do you... so there's a lot of trauma that goes in so the focus we fundamentally believe was there was going to be a pivot to the member experience because the way ObamaCare was metamorphosizing and and the rules and regulations were changing the focus and the balance of power between payer and provider was going to be moving more towards the member. And that's why Results CX, with the customer franchise they had and the impact they were making, was the right platform for us to enter and drive the change that we believe will, will improve the experiences of the member.
0: Uh, that's interesting. You know, healthcare, of course, is, is different uh, in the sense, uh, in a few ways. One is the third-party payments, which also makes that end, you know, user, customer, not necessarily the one that's uh, that's making the payment, and there's also the kind of the paternalistic uh, view of of medicine, where you've got the doctor and the and the patient. Uh, so I think it's a good insight to have. I think about other industries that are, you know, what is what is like as bad as as healthcare, and there isn't much. But one one some I sometimes think about is uh, like the utility industry. You know, they, we talk about people, the customer would be a a rate payer. You know, it's not a like a user of electricity; it's just someone who pays the bill. Uh-huh. That's right.
1: And, and, and why is it so? Because most of them have been seller's market. I mean, can, imagine, can you be without your electricity? In, in no. the, you know, I mean, so, you know, you are, you, you are, so it's a seller's market where, and then regulations come and then smart metering comes in, then there is a level of variability. Then there are new age players that come in that create the equivalent of Uh, you know, MVNOs where they're able to trade power and buy capacity and they they focus on customer experience. They're able to wean away from traditional utilities to new utilities. And that's the game which is happening. Never take customers for granted because there will be an inflection point either through an external stimuli, which could be regulatory stimuli, could be technology stimuli, which
0: allows somebody to come and eat your lunch if you're not taking care of your customers. I think one of the things that happens as well is that you know a given person that's a patient they're also a rate payer and they're also someone who has a wonderful experience when they go to the apple store or somewhere else so they know what it's like to be a consumer to be treated properly absolutely very well said so what is this concept of of cx and how do you think about the challenges of supplying a proper cx in in today's environment cx is
1: customer experience so you know uh, that if you take a look at the evolution of cx it started as call centers, uh, and call centers were associated with telesales. The first initial wave was, you know, acquiring, you know, you get uh, you, you get hit with 100 calls saying you want to buy a credit card, you want a mortgage, you want an insurance, you want a, you know, a flight ticket, and then the DNC regulations came in, and from there, the call centers went into, you know, a customer service, basically using this channel so that people knew that they didn't have to use a post box to go and. And and find ways of how they can you know uh, handle their grievances so that they, it, so it started as, as as a call center which was more outbound moved into inbound customer service and then it moved into being a contact center which is using multiple channels of interaction so you know it's not just you're talking to someone you're helping someone through messaging through email you're using web chat you're using other low cost channels to engage in a customer and then you know, which kind of work could be done in different locations. So can I move work to Philippines, to India, to Guatemala, to Vietnam, where I can get a lower cost and yet where customer service is a little innate compared to the geographies where you can get that same experience. But the problem with those geographies is they don't have the ability to solve for complex claims, complex calls because they are, it's not native to their living. So if, an Amazon uh, contact center or a Netflix contact center uh, in Philippines will have the same kind of results as in America or probably lower uh, because people consume Netflix and Amazon in the Philippines the same way uh, they do it in America. Right. So that is in the affiliation, there's a the homogeneity in the consumption, which allows them to identify with the pain points of why somebody is trying to you know get their problem solved. And then, uh, the, the, but you take that to healthcare. American healthcare is very different from what somebody is used to in Philippines or India. So that's why you have to figure out what is the right kind of business you put in with geographies to ensure you get the customer experience. And then moving the contact center to customer experience, which is where you're not looking at, at a way to, for somebody to call in and solve them. You're trying to ensure that you can sell more into them. You can you know, you you start looking at segmentation strategies. You know, the, I call customers in three buckets. You, you know, customer is a promoter because they love the brand. Uh, you know, they stay with the brand irrespective of what. Uh, then they are passive; they don't care as long as it works. My credit card works. I don't care whether I'm with the Capital One or a JP Morgan or an Amex or a Bank of America. It doesn't care. My card works. Or I'm 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 a detractor. Whatever you do, I'm going to be unhappy. I'm you know I'm just that can I'm made that way. Yeah. So, so the question is the customer experience looks to move people across buckets. So it it looks to make the detractors passive, make the passive into promoters. And that cycle, it comes in with using data insights, using, you know, what makes somebody happy? Why is somebody coming in? What is the problems I can solve? Using AI to predict what is the conversation going to be, making sure the person that's solving the problem has all the tools in place so that somebody who comes in with a problem you solve it and they go out happy and they are happy with the brand. Somebody who comes in uh, not too happy, becomes unhappier after the conversation, the chances that the customer
0: is going to lose that customer
1: is very high and that's yeah.
0: what You know, um, sometimes I get these uh, uh, surveys after having a customer experience interaction and I, I don't always want to fill them out because sometimes when I'm filling it out, I, I, I feel like that the individual on the other side may well have been trying and that they were not equipped with the right sort of a tool to be successful. So I don't want to evaluate them and said they did a bad job. Uh, is that fair of me?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that is one. Plus, e- e- even a very well-trained agent, you know, the algorithms today, I mean, even I lose patience. If I have to answer 15 questions at the end of a conversation, I don't have time because my job is done. But if that 15 questions can be brought on to three questions, which gives the same outcome as 15 questions. Yeah. Can you imagine? And that's where the CX algorithm and AI comes in. That's where generative AI comes in. And that's how it accelerates the ability to enable a a meaningful conversation with uh, someone. And when they close the conversation, they are able to drive the insights, which enables then the customer to then figure out, targeted marketing strategies, product development strategies,
0: which then drives the lifetime value of that unique customer. Got it. All right. Now, uh, now I'm actually starting to understand the answers to the next couple of questions I have. So one question is, I noticed that you emphasize shifting the focus away from operational excellence and to focus on powering business outcomes. So what does that mean in practice? Yeah, I, actually, it's, they are they are, they are two sides of the same coin, uh, David. I mean, operational excellence is
1: a table stick. If you, if you, if you don't have a very strong operating set of parameters which can be measured day in and day out and day in and day out, you will struggle with driving outcomes. So, so they are not either or. It's the foundational element to be able to drive outcomes. Because if I don't have operational excellence, I don't have a baseline to understand what is the data that is going through my swim lanes that I can make sense of. So, so you need a very well oiled machinery. Once that happens, you have the data insights to then say that, what can I drive as outcomes which is going beyond the call of duty for which I'm engaged with my client. That's when you start moving away from from having conversations in the cafeteria to the boardroom. Because at that point in time, you're saying, I have insights into this customer. This customer is likely to leave your network because these three things were not taken care of. You solve for these three things. You're going to ensure that this customer is going to stay with you when the next enrollment cycle happens, when the next, uh, you know, renewal cycle happens on the credit card, whatever happens when the next. They're not going to refire their mortgage. They're going to stay with you if you offer the rate, whatever it is. So driving that outcome and predicting the outcomes ensure in higher lifetime value and higher retention And and today you have the tools to do that without increasing the cost for the customer. You can drive, you can, you can be at the same cost, you can be at a lower cost, and it allows you to take a gain share. You're telling the customer, don't worry about your budget. You spend what you can afford. But if I drive a superior outcome, agree to give me a percentage of the benefit you make, which then is accretive to
0: your budget and it pays for the investments I'm making to drive that outcome for you. Got it. I saw this term also uh, digitally influenced customer journey. And I'm wondering if you could uh, explain that one a little bit. yeah, it's a, it's it's a lot of fancy
1: words there to dumb it down. it's it's very simple. if if I am uh, usually pe- people usually don't like to call into a contact center. They like to you know use the app, get it done, you know, solve for it. So that's digital. you know you' yeah. you're app you are on the website, whatever it is, you're solving for it. Uh, or you've called the IVR and, you know, the IVR gives you options and you go through it. Uh, you know your account balance, you want to transfer money, you have a reconciliation problem, you don't know whether a payment is hit, you want to stop payment, whatever it is, it gets solved. So that's all digitally. But when it becomes a little more complex and, and, and you're not able to solve for it through the digital channel, you need somebody that is trained, that picks up the thread and is able to solve for it. Now, how does the transition happen between what can be automated, what can be done, which improves the NPS because some people don't. I mean, you take a look at my 18-year-old. She doesn't want to talk to someone. She wants to solve all her problems. But you take a look at a a 70-year-old. They want to talk to someone. They they could be digitally savvy. So A, you need to have the right kind of segmentation to understand which customers you're solving for. And if if the ideal mode of solving problems is to start with the digital channel and then ensure that the the escalations happen, you're quick to pick it
0: up and get somebody to solve Got it. Okay, now you mentioned you know healthcare is a big part of what you're doing, so I'm interested in kind of healthcare customers. But broadly, what characterizes a customer of Results CX? What's the kind of profile of customers?
1: Uh, it's it's everybody. So we work for uh, people who are self insured, uh, people who come on to the uh, enrollment uh, cycle and they buy their healthcare policies every year. We work for Medicare Advantage, uh, Medicare Plus. We work for you know, that group of people, which are more of the senior generation. So we have we are uh, uh, we, we, uh, across all our payer network, we have experience across probably, I, I don't know what the terminology for 18-year-old, I mean the Gen Z, Gen Y, millennials. I mean, we work across the spectrum of everybody, you know, from from somebody who's right into the employment network, fresh up to people who are on the retirement side of the
0: fence. Got it. Okay. We're here uh, pretty much at the beginning of 2024. And I'm wondering, as you look ahead for your annual planning or whatever the the cycle is, what do you think about as kind of the major forces that are gonna drive your success in this year? No, I I think the the major drivers for our success
1: is, you know, clients making the, uh, the requirement for driving superior customer experiences front and center. Because, you know, sometimes when your industry enables you to make a little more money and you're competing, uh, you know, with a group of people uh, that, you know, is, is, gives you an unfair advantage that you can make a little money, you take the customer for granted. It's a seller's market. Now, but but changes are coming. And, and if you do not re-engineer your, your internal systems, process flows, or uh, if you don't wake up to smelling the coffee you know three to five years something can 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 absolutely go wrong so and it is people like us who keep Giving ideas. What is the art of the possible? What should you be doing? So we we are in certain industry verticals. We are nibbling, nibbling, nibbling. In some industry verticals, it's gone straight to the boardroom. It's being driven as a charter and it's moving down. So there's a different cadence in different businesses. Businesses which are highly competitive, you will see the adoption very high. In, in businesses where it is still... Uh, you know, the, the, there is a differential return on investment for the same dollar, for the same effort. It's it's those conversations are lesser. But I, I think the, the key to success is ensuring that, you know, we keep at it so that we become consultants for our customers
0: and we're not just service providers. Got it. Oh, Rajesh, I have a final question for you, which is about whether you have any time to read uh, any books. And if so, if there's any that you would recommend to our audience.
1: Oh, no I, you know honestly David my I my reading habit ever ever since I started traveling and working 15 18 hours a day my reading habits is to quick snippets blurbs and cartoons. so you know my favorites are uh you know I I keep going back to my collection of Calvin and Hobbes asterisks. I mean there, there are just so many lessons and and fun stuff out there but uh absolutely so for me I I, I love reading about uh, uh you know the latest trends, uh, you know, I'm a keen follower of some of the professors in some of the universities that I suppose around everything from uh, ESG to valuation principles to everything that keeps me connected to the hottest topics, which are right now, which boards and investors are trying to solve for. And also, uh, you know, given traditional theories of how you value businesses, how you price risk, you know, a lot of this has gone out of the window post-COVID with all the stimulus and the money coming in. Now, in the new realities and realms, how do you protect a company? How do you measure, manage risk? And how do you ensure that there's a right level of governance that delivers adequate safety to the customers,
0: employees, and shareholders? Well, Rajesh Subramaniam, CEO of Results CX, thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure being here, David. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.